The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And we'll pause there just for a moment. Soon must take place. We are 2,000 years closer to it today. It's an ever-changing truth in an ever-changing world. Now I'm changed by the word. Your cross gives me word. Your way is flawless, always there for us. Changed by, changed by the word. Changed by, changed by the word. Changed by, changed by the word. Welcome to Changed by the Word. I'm your host, Jennifer Cotney. We are excited to bring you our very first episode of the all-new Changed by the Word podcast. Changed by the Word is an outreach of the Gloucester County Community Church and is produced by the I Am Media Group. This week on Changed by the Word, Pastor Bruce Sophia brings us Lesson 1 of the Revelation series. Now, here is our teacher, Pastor Bruce Sophia. Revelation, the book of Revelation. Begin our series today. And we read the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And we'll pause there just for a moment. Soon must take place. We are 2,000 years closer to it today. That's a brilliant observation, is it not? How do they say that in Ireland? Brilliant is correct. What do they say in Montana? Uh, we're almost there. We'll get you there while we're at the end. All right. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is... The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now they are one and the same. Scripture says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have the word of God and then we have the testimony to the word of God, which is none other than Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one. Read this with me. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. One more time. So do you want to be blessed? Then let's read it. Everybody. You don't want to leave and not have the blessing. Look at what that says. Blessed. So give your little neighbor a, you know, say, hey, you just read it. You're going to be blessed. All right. We're continuing to read. And blessed are those. And take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. You may be seated. Yes. So that's what we're going to do. Verse by verse, we're going to read aloud this prophecy. Starting with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis. Revelation 1, verse 1. We better not start with Genesis. Woo, we'll be here forever. All right. I'll be 52 years if I live that long, you know, getting to Revelation. But anyway, you know what I meant, to 2221. At least I think you knew what I meant. Now, John, who writes 
the book of Revelation, also gave us the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, as well as the three letters, or what we call epistles, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. So this is the same John that is writing to us and giving us this revelation. Now we have to understand, at this time in history, Roman authorities had begun to enforce what was called emperor worship. Hence, we see the gladiators. We see the martyrdom of believers. Because as Rome enforced that you had to worship the emperor, those of faith would not do so. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not worship the idol that King Nebuchadnezzar had erected. So the Christians underwent severe persecution at this time in history. All of the apostles, except one, basically lost their heads. Some were boiled in a pot of oil. Others were hanged upside down. Some literally lost their heads. Only John the Revelator is, dies a, a natural death, although it is a death of martyrdom because he is exiled to an island called Patmos, which is a name, by the way, that um, comes from Greek and Roman mythology. And this is the Isle of Patmos. If you look to the back of the screen, that is the Isle of Patmos. It's there today. Uh, now, this is where it's located. So you just have an idea of where it was John is exiled and writes his revelation. To the right of us is Turkey. All the way to the left of us is Greece. And where that star is, is the Isle of Patmos. And this is what it looks like today, by the way. It's occupied. It's sort of a tourist place because, you know, people go to the Holy Land. They want to take Paul's journeys. And part of that includes the Isle of Patmos. Now, most Bible scholars feel that this was the last book written in our canon, 95 A.D., so it's the last that's included that's considered inspired of God. Now, Revelation is written in an, apple, uh, an apocalyptic form. Now, what does that mean? I practiced that word a dozen times. Didn't quite get it right Saturday night. Did it the early service. Didn't quite get it right this time. It's apocalyptic. Apocalyptic form is a Jewish type of literature that speaks in symbolic imagery. Um, some people came and approached me about this after the last service and said, well, I thought the Holy Spirit inspired John the right. He did. But there are certain forms of writing, just like there's Hebrew, there's Greek, there's Aramaic. And so this was a specific type of Jewish literature that was given to us, and it does so in what is called symbolic imagery. And I want you to see what I'm talking about here. Go with me, if you would, to verses 14 and 15 of this first chapter. So just turn with me. It's, uh, uh, we'll get there in a second. Let me just, I remember when I was doing a philosophy course and uh, taking my master's at Rowan, and when you did philosophy, you literally had to think totally different. 
like out of the box. There were words you used and it was like all of a sudden you move from this world to this world. I guess it would be like speaking English and speaking Spanish or speaking English and speaking German. You know what I mean? Somehow you have to begin to think in another world um, so you can put your words together and do so correctly. Um, for instance, am I allowed to say this, Wanda, to everybody? Um, we're looking for an interpreter for our deaf ministry through this series. Now, Wanda helps us. She does the music. But she's not able to interpret the sermon because there's so much spiritual language in it. Eschatology, premillennial, just, just words that aren't typical to the deaf culture. That you have to find somebody who is like really versed at interpreting religious language. And so you can pray about that because we have a number of our deaf people who have asked if we could interpret for them. They want to be a part of this study and we haven't been able to find anyone. So you know what? We're going to stop right now and we're going to pray and ask God to raise up someone who can interpret for our, our deaf community this book of Revelation with me as I go through it. So we're going to just take a hand for a moment uh, join somebody, connect in some way or another. And we're going to ask the Lord to do a miracle, raise somebody up. We'll point back to this day, January the 5th. Lord Jesus, you said we're two or three of us in agreement would touch any one thing, that you would be present and you would hear. So hear our prayer. Raise up an interpreter. May we look back on this fifth day of January and say God heard and answered. And the church said... Amen. So we're talking about different kinds of languages. So in verse 14, look at, at what John says to us. He's, he's looking into heaven and he says, the hair on his head was white like wool. Does that mean his hair was like wool? White like snow. Do we put a snowman on top of Jesus' head? You following me? His eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Sort of looks like the video I showed you of Raiders of the Lost Ark, remember? You know, like these glowing eyes. And if you looked at him, zap, man, you just fried right in your spot. And how do we describe that? How do you describe eyes that are like fire, feet that are like bronze? You know, how do you describe a voice that is as the voice of rushing waters? You'd be deaf if you heard it. So it comes to us in what we call symbolic imagery. And although Revelation is about the end times... And it paints a graphic, full living, color, word, video. It does so. This is the scary part about Revelation. I'm just going to be upfront with you. It does so relational to the death of believers. In fact, there are so many that die for what they believe. John can't even count them. They were beyond number. So the book deals with the martyrdom of Christians in the last days. And yet, in the midst of that being somewhat scary, I had a girl come up to me last night after the service and she says, you know, I, I could die for myself, but if it meant my daughter, I don't think I could do that. You'd like to know how I responded, didn't you? I'm not going to tell you today, but anyway. 
What I'm saying to you is, you know, there's that frightening part of the book, but yet it's laced with hope. Every chapter is like a golden thread that weaves its way through the cloak of a garment. It's laced with hope. Why? Because Christ is the central figure of the book. It proclaims his sovereignty and reveals that he is greater than any power in the universe, that he has no equal, that he cannot be compared to any leader, any government, any theocracy. He controls history, including the final showdown between God and Satan. That's what this book is about. God is control. Don't fret. You know, don't, don't sweat it in that sense. God reigns over nations and there's coming a day when he's going to face Satan head on and that creep that made you sin and made me sin and continues to tempt us, he's going to put his foot on his head and squash his brains out. That's what you call symbolic imagery. I don't think it's in the book, but it's in my book. All right. So then God's anger against sin and unrighteousness is going to take place. Satan and his demonic host will be defeated. False religions are going to be destroyed. God will, read this with me. God will reward the faithful with eternal life. And the church said, hallelujah. And those who reject him with eternal damnation. So let me be honest with you. See, we live in an age that doesn't even speak of a hell. It's like it doesn't exist. The church doesn't touch it. There's a hell. There's eternal life in the presence of God. And there's eternal life in the regions of the damned. Jesus said those who did good to the resurrection of life, those who did evil to the resurrection of judgment. There is a heaven, there is a hell. I realize it's been said, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. But if I have to believe Jesus or Lenin, I'm going to believe Jesus because Lenin's bones are still in the grave. And the church said, Amen. Amen. You're following me? And there is hell. In fact, listen, salvation makes absolutely no sense if there's no hell. Really, what are you going to be saved from if there's no hell? Jesus is God's going to give his only son, you know, encase him in flesh which most religions look as to being disrespectful for the sole purpose of coming to a cross and giving his life and saving you from what if there's no hell? It just makes no sense. You're saved means you're saved from something to something. So the reason why there's a savior and the reason there's a cross and the reason why there's a grave and the reason why there was a a resurrection and the reason why he's coming back again is because there is a hell and he doesn't want anybody to go there. And we can't lose sight of the fact that there's a hell. That's why we witness. That's why we pray. That's why we share the gospel. That's why we share. That's why we connect. That's why we serve. Why? Because there's a hell. And somehow we lose sight of that. Do you realize the person living next to you that hasn't given their life to Christ, if they don't, they're going to go to hell forever? Does that really grip us? 
And go one step further. Does it grip you, the fact that it's just not a sinner on their way to hell. It's a sinner who God died for. That's how important that person is to God. Are they that important to us? It's really quiet. (laughs) One sole reason as we weave our way through this book is that God would unite every believer. All the fractures, you know, the hundreds of Protestant denominations, Roman Catholicism, and he takes all those who believe and he makes them one. That's the miracle of miracles, that we are all one. Give the Lord a round of applause. And that's what we see. So I just covered... uh, Revelation 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22-21 in three paragraphs. Not bad, huh? But there's all kinds of good stuff in between, and we're not going to forget that. So up front, let me be completely honest with you. This study, the presentation of this book, is no small undertaking. I mean, I have to take hours of study and somehow break it down into a 35-minute message so that it makes sense to you. Not only do I have to break this down into 35 minutes that make sense to you, but somehow I've got to make this practical. And that's the most difficult part of the book of Revelation, is how do we make this practical? How do we apply it Monday through Sunday? Not just we're learning about certain things, they're fascinating, but how do we make it a part of our everyday life. That's my task. And here's our problem. As my dad would say, I can see him still walking up the steps. My dad was awesome. He's in glory now. Forgive me. He died around Christmas. He was like a true Nathaniel, a man who had no guile. It was my daddy. But I could see him when we lived in Pittman. He'd come up the steps and he'd say, Bruce, we've got a problem. <laughs> and I would say, nothing God can't say. I'll solve, Pop. <laughs> he'd come up. He would work to, to solve it. But here's our problem, as my dad would say. We're pre-programmed when we come to this book. We have watched a movie. We've read a book. You know, we've heard a sermon, we have a certain verse, and we've, a person's built their whole doctrine around this verse, and they present their theology around one verse. We've got to sort of unlearn to learn. We're going to look at the whole book. We can't put God in a box, and we have a tendency to do that. See, eschatology is the study of events leading up to the end of time. That's what eschatology is. We say, oh, it's about the end of the world. It's about events leading up to the end of the world as we know it. Before God exchanges the earth like a garment, gives us a new heaven and a new earth that won't have any sea. Oh, wait till you see this. You're going to love this book. We're going to make it practical, though. But, you know, you build your theology around something. And in most instances, most people have never read the book. 
So how in the world can we accept a theology, a doctrine, and you've never read the book? And then you run into people who have read the book and they go to you, Pastor, I have no clue what in the world this book means. So you know what we do? We become pan-eschatologists. You know what that is? Remember, eschatology is the study of events leading up to the end of the age. So we become pan-eschatologists. You know what that means? Pastor, I ain't worried about it all pan out in the end. <laughs> and that sounds like a great idea. And I have to tell you, that was my philosophy for years. I had people say, Pastor, how come you don't preach on the book of Revelation? I said, because you know what? It's not going to make any difference if I preach on it or not. God's going to come when he comes. Just chill out. Don't worry about it. It'll all pan out in the end. You know why I did that? Because I thought the book was about the end times. I thought it was about the when, the where, the how. It's not about any of those things. The when, the where's, and the how only take us to one person. The book is about one person. From verse 1 to the last verse. And the person is none other than Jesus Christ. That's what the book is about. And so what happens is, if we get on this little tangent, we have this little verse here we like, or that little verse there that we like, you know, and we take off on it, it's going to take us down the wrong road every time. It did just 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. You want to see it? Go with me to, to, to the book of Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 20 years after Jesus has died, rose from the dead, Paul is writing uh, the church at Thessalonica and saying, you're off track. Look at it. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. And our gathering together to him. All right? That, that's the rapture. That's when the church is caught up together. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure. Or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Already in the church, the Lord had come. There was this theology running through the church that Jesus had come back. He says, let no one deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness, that is the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction or perdition. And we see that in the book of Daniel. Now, fast forward with me, 1810 years. And here's what we see. Joseph Smith claimed Jesus would establish the New Jerusalem in Jackson County, Missouri. And in the process, he launched a religious movement that denied essential truths about Jesus, such as Jesus is God. Still today, still today, still today, Mormons don't even know what the church believes. Still today, Mormons expect Jesus to return somewhere along the eastern outskirts of Kansas City. That's what they believe. 
So let's fast forward to 1987. A retired NASA engineer, Eggert Wissenaut, published a pamphlet entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Now, this is no dummy. This is a NASA, NASA, not NASA. They drive cars, right? Those weird things. They just go round and around. NASA, what, what do you call that? NASA. NASA. I was close. Round and around and around and around and around. Anybody into that? Some of you. Good. I'm glad. Like, man, I've seen him go around the track once. That's like enough for me. Like, oh, 500 miles. By the time that thing is over, man, my head's going. When's Jesus coming back, right? But anyway, I'm only having fun. I, I love horse racing, so I love to watch horse races and people think I'm nuts. I don't bet on them. Though sometimes I wish I had. All right. Mr. Wissenant is quoted as saying, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. And if there were a king in this country, I would gamble my life. I would stake my life on Rosh Hashanah 1988. And then let's go as far as 19, I mean, uh, 2011, right? May 22nd. 2011, Jesus is coming back. Billboards everywhere. Why? Because the book isn't about knowing the day and the time and the when and the where. The book is about Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And when we stay focused on Jesus Christ and we look for him in every aspect of this book, you never get off track. You won't have wrong doctrine. You won't get screwed up in what you believe. You won't be sitting on some mountain waiting for Jesus to come back. You won't be getting some revelation from an angel, Moroni, that tells you you just start a whole new religion that thinks blacks don't even have souls. Did you know that? You get off track when you lose sight of Jesus. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. You know, when you, begin to, when you begin to read this book and you see Jesus in it all, you know, you begin to understand why there are some who believe in what's called Jesus only. It, it's a whole doctrine. And what they believe is it's Jesus only. Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is all three. He just manifests himself as the Father. He manifests himself as as the, the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't believe that. I believe there is a Father, and I believe there is a Son, and I believe there is a Holy Spirit, and I believe in the counsels of the godly. They decided that Jesus was going to be lifted up above all because he was there in the beginning, he's there in the end, he gets the glory, but you can see that. Why? Because it's all him. Don't lose sight that it's all Jesus. That's what this thing is about. So, as Christians... We must study the end times because we're commanded to do so. I'm sorry, when Bruce used to say, ah, it'll work out in the end, I was wrong. God clearly tells us to study this book. 
In fact, as we walk through the epistles, Timothy, Peter, and go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, it says, because they testify that God will bring the world as we know it to an end. Study it. Be ready. Be prepared. Jesus repeatedly told his disciples to watch for his return in the four gospels. The apostle Paul warned us to stay awake and sober and not be caught sleeping. Now he's not talking about stay awake mean don't go to sleep. He may be talking about staying sober mean you know don't have too much to drink. But he's talking about the fact that don't get caught complacent. Don't get caught thinking, oh, yeah, he'll never come. What the heck? You know, I'm just going to live, eat, drink, be merry, have fun. One day when Jesus comes, he's coming. But he's not coming forever. No, stay awake. Share Christ. Connect with people. Serve others. Don't ever tire and well-doing. And all throughout this book, by the way, it says, he that endures to the end shall be saved. He that endures to the end shall be saved. He that endures to the end shall be saved. What's he talking about? Those who stay awake. Those who consider the spread the gospel. Those who live the gospel. Don't get lazy. Don't get complacent. Don't compromise in a world that seeks to have us compromise everywhere we turn. Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. The very lips of Jesus. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. By the way, the only place in all the Bible, in the entire Bible, that we're told if we read it out loud, we're blessed. Look at it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. In fact, let's stand. We're going to read it out loud. So we go home with a blessing today. It says, blessed is the one. Okay, first blessing. Now there's another one. Okay, read it, you get a blessing. Now there's a second blessing. You want to go home with one, two, or three? That's why I think there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One blessing, two blessing, three blessing. Here it is right here. All right. What's the second blessing? And blessed are those who hear it. Uh, 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 that's, that's the first. Second. Just hear it. Now, what's the third? And take it to heart what it is that's written. Because the time is near. It is near. 2,000 years nearer than it was when this was written. So, here's how we're going to approach the book. Take a seat. Goodness, I can't believe I'm going this long in this service. I didn't go over in the other two. The eagles are done. Don't worry about it. So, I'll preach forever. Sorry about that. What a bummer. Wasn't that a bummer? But really, why should we be bummed out? We have a first-year coach. We really have, in essence, a first-year quarterback. And we made it this far. I think our future as a team is quite bright. Everyone would say that? But I really was disappointed because I wanted Big Red to face Chip Kelly in the Super Bowl. I thought that would have been the coolest thing you know, my, my, my brother, can you believe that my son-in-law is a Dolphins fan? <laughs> fish. Who in the world wants to vote for fish? That's beyond me. Anyway, of course, we do put it on our car, don't we? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're fishers of men. All right. So listen, let me be honest with you. There are four different ways that we can interpret this book. Four different ways. So, you know, you're probably coming with half a way at best. I'm not even going to give you the four ways today. 
There are three views on the millennium. Now, what's the millennium? That's a 1,000-year period when God chains Satan, puts him in chains. He's tied up, so he can't tempt the world. And there are three views here. There's what we call when Christ returns, will come before the 1,000 years. That's pre-mill. Then there's, there's post-mill. Or will Christ return after the 1,000 years when, when uh, Satan has been bound? And then there's called a-mill. A-millennial viewpoint. Which, by the way, Harold Camping was an a-millennialist. So there's three perspectives on the millennium. Then we get to what is called the rapture. Now, the rapture is when God catches up the church, the believers, those who are blood-washed, blood-bought, you know, who have received Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And there are three perspectives here. There's actually a fourth, which is mine. I'm going to give that to you. Okay, there's pre-trib that happens before the tribulation. Then there's those who believe that the church is going to get caught up in the middle of the tribulation. And then there's those that think the church is going to get caught up after the tribulation, and then there's those like me who are pre-wrath. And we believe the church will be caught up before God pours out his wrath upon the earth. So we can look at this book from all different perspectives, different viewpoints. Let's not block him in. Let's not lock him in. And, you know, we talk about, and then <laughs> there's another thing. Who's tribulation? We talk about the tribulation. We have the great tribulation. Whose? God's or Satan's? Because Satan certainly has tribulated, if you please, man from day one. Believers today, thousands of them, are losing their lives in countries where Christianity is persecuted. Literally. We have more martyrdom today than ever before in the history of the world. You don't know that, but it's true. So, you know, we in this Western world, we're covered by, thank God... You know, God's grace and a Christian community. But Christians are put to death all over the world for what they believe. So there's, there's, there's persecution, which is Satan's. And then there's God's. Because God is going to pour out his wrath. He sends him in bowls upon the earth. And he cleanses it, as Peter said, with fire. So there's whose tribulation. So we're going to talk about all those things. Sounds complex, doesn't it? Ah. We'll make it simple. At least I think we'll make it simple. If I can understand it, anybody can understand it. We're going to be fine. Now, quickly, I'm already 20 seconds over, but I'll wrap this up. So just stay with me. All right. So here we are. Verse four, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. By the way, they're all lined up. When you see them on the seashore, they're all lined up, including Philadelphia. Did you know we're in there? Yeah, we are. You'll see it. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits before his throne. Remember we said symbolic imagery. What are these seven spirits before God's throne? What in the world do they look like? What do they do? What's their purpose? I love it. Yes. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn, really? You mean there weren't people raised from the dead in the Old Testament? Certainly there were. The man that was thrown on, on Elisha's grave came to life again. So why does it say he's the firstborn? You're going to see that. And the ruler of the kings of the earth, 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, church said, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. All the people of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. For I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who was, uh, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, next week, we're going to pick up with this passage of Scripture. I'm going to start to delve into the substance in these verses. But this is what I want to say. It says Jesus is returning to earth, and he is going to set up his kingdom, number one. Secondly, in these verses, it says every eye will see his return. Now, I have to tell you, when I first read that, I'm immediately thinking about 9-11. I remember when that happened. One of our pastors had the television on. And he's running through the hall. Look, you got to come see this. Hurry up. you got to come see this. Look at what happened. By the time we got there, the second plane had hit the second tower. And in a sense, the whole world was watching it happen. So I'm thinking, oh, that's why Jesus waits to the 21st century. Because every eye will see him. And since he said that, it's got to be. And then I'm thinking, how stupid am I? Really, how stupid Sophia, can you be? Do you think God needs TV for the whole world to see him? I mean, does not the sun rise and set every day? Does not the whole world see the sun rise and see it set? So it's nothing for God to let the whole world see his return, whether there's television or there isn't. And the church said, you're right, pastor. That's really hard to say, isn't it? Good, say it. Ah, it sounds good, yes. Listen, and it says, everyone will mourn. Why mourn? Next week. It says, lastly, note, who is the beginning and the end? The almighty Jesus. So how do we make this practical? Quickly, i got to wrap this up. I'm not sure what your goals are for 2014. I really don't know. You may not even have any. When Pastor Bob said to us, you know, what are your goals? I'm thinking, I really don't have any. I'd like to lose 10 pounds, but... Other than that, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, you know. Can I suggest, don't chase the goal. Say that with me. Don't chase the goal. Chase Christ. Make him your goal. It's like studying this book of Revelation. If we're looking to find the what, the when, the how, and the where, guarantee we'll get off track. But if we look for Christ, lay hold of him, find his will, and do it, we'll never get off track. So make him your plan every day. Make him your goal every day. You'll never have a bigger goal. You will never have a bigger plan to simply say, Jesus, today you are my goal. Today you are my plan. And if you will make him your goal, and you will make him your plan, your plan, you will never have a bad day. Amen. Ever. Now, you may not know that. You're liable to come home and say, honey, this was the worst day of my life. But if Jesus were your goal, if Jesus was your plan, when you get to heaven, you're going to go, I can't believe it. That was the best day of because when he's central to what it is you do, to how it is you live, to what it is you say, to what it is you, and how you share the love of Christ, then you can't have a bad day. No matter how bad it is, it ain't bad.
And the church said. Chuck and the church said. Thank you. I have you mesmerized, don't I? You're just staring at me. No, you were asleep. Don't sleep. I'm only kidding. All right. So let's talk for a moment. You say, Pastor, how in the world do I start? Where in the world do I begin to make Jesus my plan, make Jesus, you know, my day, to make Jesus the way, make Jesus my goal? Start by just saying, Lord, here I am. Have you given your life to Christ? Oh, I forgot to share with you the wins last night. We had three people receive Christ in Saturday night service and three people get baptized. Wasn't that awesome? Yeah. Changed by the word. How are we changed by the word? Scripture tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why did God, why did Jesus put on flesh for one purpose? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That is all of us. So Jesus put on flesh to go to a cross, take upon himself our sin, shed his blood. For scripture is clear, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. So that our sins could be obliterated in the eyes of a holy God. So when we receive Jesus, God doesn't see us in our sin. He literally sees us in the righteousness of Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says to the saints at Galatia, to the saints of Ephesus, and he calls us saints because God doesn't see us in our sin. But how does that take place? A, we admit the truth about ourselves that we are sinners. The Bible says, he that knows to do right and does it not to him, it's sin. That's all of us. We then believe the truth about God, that he loved us, and therefore he sent his son to be our substitute, so to speak, on the punishment for sin, shedding his blood, removing our sins in the eyes of a holy God. Then see, we commit ourselves to that righteousness, to Jesus, who knew no sin, but became sin in our behalf. And then I always had a D, do it today because none of us are promised tomorrow the apostle said behold now is the acceptable time today is the day of salvation so for those of you who have yet to receive christ maybe you've never heard that you had to receive christ maybe you didn't know that for jesus to live inside of you um, you have to ask him to do that so it's a simple prayer simply say father thank you for loving me I believe you sent Jesus who died on a cross, took my place, took upon himself my sin. And today, Lord Jesus, I ask you, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Come into my heart. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for those of you who prayed with me, here's Jennifer. She'll tell you what you do next. of you who prayed with Pastor Bruce today, congratulations and welcome to the family. We would love to hear about your decision and to offer you our new Believer's Guidebook entitled, What Now? Give us a call at 1-800-CHANGED. That's 1-800-242-6433. Join us next week right here on Changed by the Word, the never-changing truth in an ever-changing world.